I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. God, I'm so excited to do this. Me too. And I just, I of course, I had to text my um, French boyfriend right before the interview, and I was like, is it way? Like, W-A-Y wait, or way? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love a French boyfriend sitch. I know. That's fun. I, it's Yeah, and I always think of you about France because I think I've, I've pretty much seen you the, at least 90% of the time when it's Paris, Fashion Week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Usually okay. at the Bristol, right? Yeah, of course. I, I love. I so I don't want to go anywhere that doesn't have a hundred dollar room service for coffee. Oh, you know? those fucking eggs! The breakfast <laughs> there. Oh my god. I I actually don't miss New York, but I do miss Paris. Weird. I miss New York the way it was, but we're gonna get back to it. Yeah. Okay, I'm sure. gonna read your bio. Jen Atkins started her career in Hollywood and quickly began working with the most influential stars, including Kim, Chloe, and Kourtney Kardashian, Katy Perry, Jessica Alba, and Jennifer Lopez. Today, with over 3.7 million followers on social media, she's what the New York Times calls the most influential hairstylist in the world. Counting top models Chrissy Teigen, Kendall and Kylie Jenner, and Gigi and Bella Hadid as some of her most loyal clientele. Traveling frequently between the U.S., Europe, and Middle East, Jen was inspired to launch her hair care line, Way, in 2016. She released her own range of Beauty Works hair extensions, her line of Chloe and Isabel hair accessories, and worked closely with Dyson to bring their innovative blow dryer, the Supersonic, to the market. In an effort to unite the hair industry and create community amongst hairstylists, Jen created the digital platform Main Addicts, including Main University. And to top it off, Jen recently published her first book, Blowing My Way to the Top. Please welcome in my chair, Jen Atkin. Hi, Jen. Woo! I'm going to be my own audience. <laughs> I've blown my way, but not to the top. It just is a you know hamster wheel of blow. My God, Quinn, hearing you read that makes me really feel like I need to take a nap. Me too. I don't know how you do it. There must be like a you must have like body doubles or something, you know, that show up and and they put the glasses on and we think it's you, but it's not. Well, it's funny because as you get older, your bio gets longer, and then you just sound like a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, your bio gets longer. <laughs> oh my God. It's so fun to be here. I'm so happy that we get to catch up. It's Thank been a you. I'm really happy too. And well, first of all, the elephant in the room is how have you been? Are you over the pandemic? Are everything okay? Such a loaded question, right? Yeah. Like, how and do I mean, we answer? Because I can't say fine. I can't just say fine. Um, I have been. Losing my mind, but also feeling inspired by everyone's resilience, trying to keep it together while also enjoying the most time I've ever spent at my house. And, you know, I right now I'm feeling very hopeful and I feel like there's a lot of great stuff ahead and I'm excited for it. Was it hard for you as a business owner and also having your book come out? And I think you also just redid your home and having all of these things that you rely on, you know, the world to work. Like, what was that like? Well, the home stuff, I don't really, I just live here. My husband, Mike, kind of, it's his forte. He loves okay. it. So he does all that. But as far as the book, it was, you know, obviously quite a task to write a book. I, I set time aside and it was quite therapeutic to just kind of go through my journey and I think sit and reflect and give myself a little bit of credit. Cause I think 
we all get caught up in the what's next, future, 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 that I just really hadn't had time to go through old photo albums. And, you know, it, it was much more of like a emotional journey than I expected it to be. But I, you know, everything else, like with, with business, I, I found myself in a place where, you know, this pandemic shut down retailers and right. none of us knew what to expect. We couldn't go into our office that we're 13,000 square foot office that's close to my house. And like, it's been my dream for us to have that office. We finished it in February and moved in and then March was the lockdown. So, you know, listen, at the end of the day, I wake up and I'm so grateful to have a job. I'm so grateful to the team because again, like the resilience of human beings, I think is so incredible. Um, We have team members who are single and isolated now almost a year in an apartment. We have team members who have children who are obviously, you know, wearing many, many hats and to just see everyone kind of come and support each other and to be able, you know, we like basically hit our target that we planned on hitting. The good news for us is people are home and hydrating and taking care of their hair and their body. (laughs) So Did you have to change your approach, like in terms of doing a lot more like um, social media at home and how to's and stuff like that? Yeah, I didn't have to do that. Um, I think, you know, like you finding your way to where you're at with with this podcast, like I think everyone just kind of took a moment and, you know, was like, what's my purpose? What am I doing? I can't do my normal routine you know, what, what can I do? So I kind of reluctantly towards the beginning, I was like, you know what, listen, I've always wanted to have more time to be able to create, to be able to create content at home. So Mike set up a little light situation in my office and I started just doing like cutting your hair at home tips and how to cut, you know, a guy's haircut and easy steps. And, um, you know, just tried to kind of keep myself in a positive mindset because the doomsday scrolling and the uncertainty of what was ahead was really, you know, overpowering and kind of scary. So I was like listening to like disco and putting on like blasting (laughs) some Grace Jones and just getting a small curling iron and like, you know, having fun and trying to keep the mood light on my page. Everyone I've talked to has kind of found a way to slow down and and be at ease with it, you know, but it, it's not easy in the beginning. Are you, are, would you describe yourself as a workaholic? I would have described myself like that. I have, I mean, we'll have to get into this, but I, in October, 2019 spent a week at like a psychotherapy camp called Hoffman Institute. Oh yeah. I have a friend who went there. It's incredible. And since going, you know, it kind of like got my priorities in a much more realistic uh way you know I, I i stopped getting validation from work which i realized i was really caught up in that and i think when you are on social media and sharing your journey you know you can tend to kind of get caught up in just the grind and and not even that i i think i said yes to everything for so many years because i didn't want to seem ungrateful to the opportunities that were being presented to me and i also found patterns that I have of people pleasing. Mm. And 
you know, had just kind of neglected myself for a while. And I think it was really top of 2019. You know, I, I wrote about it in the book, but I was just not in a healthy place. I was drinking maybe too much. I was definitely dehydrated and I had um, a herniated disc in my neck from being on my computer and my phone so much and ended up fainting one night. So long story short, my body just kind of gave out and was like enough is enough. And it kind of led me into this journey of finding time for me and making space and realizing that like I don't need to let the internet rush me and I don't need to I don't need to become um like my value is not my job. You know what I mean? Like I and, and it was for sure. Yeah. 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 But you still from the outside like you still like are running a brand and have a book and doing all this stuff. So at, how do you balance the actual thing of going okay? This isn't what I want and I am going to take time for myself, but you have all all these people on your team you're responsible for and everything to do that needs to get done. Yeah, I kind of always explain that you know, there are those years that you kind of have to grind. And my both my husband and I, you know, have experienced that where we just did not see each other for like 3 or 4 years. You know, there comes a time when it gets easier and I tell brand founders this all the time, like year 2, year 3, as you start to build a team, as more people take on responsibilities, you know, there definitely is like your hurdles and challenges that you have to go through, but it does get a bit easier. My problem was I was also working with clients still and trying to do as many jobs as I could while I was working on the brand, while I was also working on main addicts. And it just got to be a lot. Um, Since the beginning of both brands, I now have like, we have like 40, I think 43 people now at Way. And we have, you know, senior leaders who are running, you know, helping just to navigate everything and make sure everybody's, you know, where they need to be. And main addicts, we are a smaller team of like nine plus uh, the stylists that we work with. So, um, you know, I just, you figure it out. I made time in the mornings. I started working out. I started waking up earlier. I started doing a gratitude journal. I started meditating once or twice a day. Um, and really like religiously doing it. Like I have this habit tracker that I am crazy about. Um, and so I now have my mornings that are mine and I don't look at my phone. Um, I definitely like lessen my screen time. We just become like, I don't know, we become like slaves to our phone and it's totally really unhealthy. Not without even knowing it. Like, I'm like, wait, why is my phone open onto Instagram? I didn't remember doing that it's just such a matter of habit and don't get me started on notifications they're (laughs) literally the worst thing on the planet it's your phone nudging you and and 97 percent of the time it's nothing that you need to see right then you know nothing is as urgent as we think um so Jen, why, so now that you have all of this you know 40 people at a company nine at another what it why do you still go to do your clients? Why not just say that was you know what I did before? Because it's like a part of my identity and it's what I love. You know, I wouldn't do it mm-hmm. if I didn't love it. And I can't imagine not, you know, I, I am a creative and I've been doing hair for 
you know, almost 20 years now. And I truly, really, like, it's not about money for me. You know, it used to be like, oh, I got to do this. It was like more of like a financial obligation. And I was just kind of like, you know, I paid for main attic on by myself for about four years. So the money I was using, the money I was making from doing hair was going right into the business. But now everything has changed. And I have to say, especially after the break that we've all had in 2020, I really look forward to it. You know, I can't do everything, but when I can, like, I really love being on set. I love seeing my clients. And I think now it's just like be, having human interaction when you can just means so much. I agree. So when you were going back into your um, pictures and everything, was it like, were you like looking back at your childhood or was it more of like when you first moved to LA or? Oh my God. Yeah, all of it. So I started when I got the offer to do the book, I HarperCollins was like, we think it'd be really interesting you telling kind of your story. And I didn't think I had a story to tell, to be honest. I was like, wait, my story doesn't really, you know, I thought I wanted like a Phil Knight shoe dog story of like, you know, sold the company and went on right. to do other things. But when I really sat down, I, it was crazy. I felt like I was like watching the movie of my life. And I was really like, wanting to write about the misses and not just the wins because mm. I think for me the book became I, I didn't want to tell all about my clients I didn't want it to be just about like the glamorous you know jet setting fancy schmancy stuff I really wanted to talk about what it was like growing up Mormon I wanted to talk about what it was like going through this like feminist journey in hair and I wanted to kind of talk to the person who I was when I was 19. So like, I feel like especially now more than ever, there's people who feel like they are stuck in a rut, or maybe they are being pulled down by bad decisions that they've made, or they can't catch a break, or they're having a hard time finding their purpose or pivoting, um, and just really feel like they need help. And I've been there. Yeah. And so it was important for me to really like talk about you know, trying to get an agent and not hearing from anybody for about two years, um, trying to build clientele and how long that journey took. Um, and then, you know, just really like painting a realistic picture and a spirited guide um, for people so that they could hopefully get inspired and, and learn from my mistakes and learn from the good decisions I made. How much of you being raised Mormon is still a part of who you are today? Well, I don't give 10% of my earnings to the church anymore. Okay. But, <laughs> um, you know, that's another thing that I think going to Hoffman really helped me with. Because I think, you know, when you leave a religion that your whole family is a part of, there's a bit of guilt and shame attached to that. And I think identity issues. And I remember, you know, feeling like, oh, I'm totally fine. I'm spiritual, you know, it's like I figured it out. But I realized like when I left, I felt like I left a part of like whatever a higher power is in the church. It's very laid out like Jesus Christ, Holy Ghost. But I, in a weird way, feel like I learned how to kind of put confidence, not just in a God, but in myself. And now at 40 years old, like I, I feel the most spiritual I think I ever have in my life. 
And I also recognize how the Mormon church really shaped who I am as far as like, you learn from a young age about how to be in service of others. You Mm -hmm. learn humility, you learn um, empathy. And I never, I have to say like indulged in celebrity and success and wealth and all the things I've seen in my 20 years in LA, I really feel like my Mormon roots have like kept me grounded and have kept me really looking at like the big picture of just, you know, people as a whole and not, and you know, it's, it was, it was good and it was bad. And I think I've learned to take all the good things from my upbringing. You know, it's funny because the Mormons who I do meet are usually ex-Mormons, but every time they say the principles and the lessons I learned being a Mormon were, you know, what made me who I am today. So why, um, if people have such a fondness of the kind of um, wholesome or goodness of what they learned, why wouldn't everyone still be involved in the church? Oh, God. Well, listen, I think it's different for everybody. We have a lot of people in glam. Like, you know, I think Bryce Scarlett and Chad Wood. No, Bryce was and, not. Oh, Bryce was not raised Mormon? No. Nikki, uh-uh. the roost, maybe. I know that Bo Nelson, Mormon. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It's it's interesting, though. As I And I remember Jake Bailey actually had a tie as well. Like, um, you know, I think it's different for everybody. I used to joke with my dad and I was like, you know, I, I used to say the internet is going to be kind of harmful to the church. Cause I think, you know, our generation is like, and I, I don't want to loop you in my generation cause you're younger than I am, but you know, I think my parents' generation. Don't just go silent when you say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> my parents' generation, you know, didn't have the same sense of the world that we do. And I think right. that, um, you know, it just, for me personally, there were issues at a young age of my own feminist issues because I felt like the fact that a woman couldn't bless her children because she couldn't hold the priesthood. I didn't like, I didn't like how white the church leadership was. And I didn't like, as I got older, that sex was like shameful and, and you were meant to feel weird about your sexuality. I didn't like that. They didn't accept LGBTQ members in the church. I didn't like that. Um, there were not black members of the church until the seventies. So as I, in my teenage years, kind of were finding these things out, it didn't sit right with me. So, um, but I'm really lucky that my parents have as hard as it is for them, um, shown me unconditional love and been as supportive as they can. I, you know, again, it's like a generational thing, but, um, but my parents and I have a, a lovely relationship as do my sisters. So I'm really lucky. Did you ever have a time where you thought maybe there's nothing, maybe I don't have any faith, or maybe I'm just not optimistic? Well, this is going to come to bite me in the ass for sure. But I will tell you that when I first, the first like five years I was in LA, my best friend and I moved here together, both left the Mormon church. Our grandparents were best friends. Our dads went to high school and college together. Like we navigated this new world, didn't know what gay men were. I didn't have Jewish friends. I didn't even know what what Jewish was. And, you know, I I remember going and working in the salon and going out with these beautiful gay men 
who were taking us to clubs and now what's referred as Molly. I remember my friend and I were like, I guess in a way microdosing because we would, you know, go out and like sit in these clubs and just <laughs> talk and talk and talk. And now that I've learned that, you know, what was called ecstasy uh, was used in therapeutic treatment. And I know now there's so many studies on like ketamine therapy and microdosing mushrooms. But every gay drug is now like a, a, an opener to some part of your being, you know, it's great. But like, this is like 2003, 2004, Lindsay and I, we were like going into like a part of our brain we weren't allowed to. And we were encompassed by these men who also had been shunned from their families and Mm. were finding their own identity and were dealing with guilt and shame and all of it. So it was, we look back on it, her and I talk about it all the time. And I'm like, I fully think that those few years that we were, you know, going out and talking about like what was in our subconscious, like we were there to support one another and we had a community to support us. And it was all so like, I I really truly think it kind of saved us from falling into like a spiral of shame. And the the Molly was a part of it. Yeah. I'm, you might think I'm crazy, but no, I don't telling you, like, I think that that kept us in a mind space of being open and honest and feeling our feelings and not falling into a place of self-hatred. You know, it's like people go to ayahuasca for and say that that's what that does for them too. I'm fascinated by it. I haven't done it and it sounds scary, but I believe I know, it. I just don't want to like throw up. Yeah. You know? Totally. But yeah, well, I, it's Even so mushrooms, I, do, I guess. I, yeah. I'm still friends, by the way, with these people who like, I won't name their names, but we're still friends to this day. And we all talk about it as like, we were so vulnerable, so naive, but yet, you know, so lost in many ways. And I think that like, again, just like being able to lean on one another and support one another and create like our own sense of family was really, really helpful. Okay. I have a few more questions because I, we have actually, I'm from Oakland. We have a big Mormon temple and it did know Mormon people growing up because, you know, we would go to school together and everything, but I don't really know that much about it. But I am watching The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, which, by the (laughs) way, if The Real Housewives of New York City, someone said, is that what it's like in New York? I'd be like, "Uh, no. So I understand that it's not a representation. But um, one of the characters on it was um, divorced. And so she she was kind of exiled from the church and her husband wasn't. But it made me um, think about when you're a Mormon, you're held to a very high standard, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't live up to the kind of, I don't know the word, the code or your, the ethics of the, of the church, like in, in, in Catholicism, it's like, just go and apologize and then you're, you're fine. You know, everything's all, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Or there's a way that you can go back and say, I've, I've sinned and I'm sorry. And there's, always, there's kind of a place where you can always come back to. Is that the case in, in the Mormon church? Do you get they a second ha- chance? Right. I understand like in Catholicism, you can go and repent to a priest, right? Right. So they do have something similar where they have bishops that you can go and repent and do certain steps to repent for sins with the bishop. Um, but the complicated part of it is 
Mormons believe, and I really don't want to sound like I'm bashing the church. I'm just kind of giving my interpretation of my experience. But Mormons believe in the afterlife being like everyone will have their own planet and live with their family forever in the next life. So they have three tiers. There's a celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the, oh God, I'm going to forget the third. But apparently there's like, I remember asking, because we would do baptisms for the dead in our downtime at like 13 and you go and they would just baptize you and name dead people. And the church kind of, I think got in a little bit of trouble for that because there was like Jewish families that, you know, were like, I don't want you baptizing my, you know, relative. Um, sure. But, but anyways, I, this whole concept of like, if you get excommunicated from the church and go astray from the no caffeine of no sex before marriage, you know, it's a it's right. a very clean, strict lifestyle. And like I like I said, like in the twenties to like seventies, I'm sure this is probably a very easy way of life. But I think as the world has come to to learn about other you know, we just lost like the borders that we used to have. And I think the world is so connected now. And um and so I you know, they basically want you to just follow these this plan. So that you can live with your family in the afterlife. So it's like a, it's almost like a protective measure. Like they're just scared for you that if you don't follow the plan, you're not going to go to the afterlife. Yeah, but I think like every religion kind of has that. You know, you've yeah. got your basic guidelines that, like, whether it's from the Quran or the Bible or whatever, like you have your basic guide. So um, you could go back. It like if you wanted to go back tomorrow, you could you would be accepted back in. Well, I have been excommunicated. I remember getting a letter. What is that? Oh, it's official. Yeah. Like if you, yeah, I think it's like, if you don't attend, like they take attendance at church and also like, I don't pay tithing anymore. Mm. So they know that like, I'm not giving 10% of all my earnings. And, um, but that's a good question. I mean, I'm sure if I wanted to go back, I could somehow, I don't know. Listen, I was also the girl in high school who had seminary class first period every year so that I could sleep in. Mm. And my mom was like, Oh my God, you're not going to graduate. They worked it out where I read a book on Jesus and did a book report and I graduated seminary. So I think where there's a will, there's always a way. <laughs> how how are you with um, second chances? Because I'm sure the more hats you wear in life, the more relationships you have and the more money that's involved with everything. Do you, how do you deal with um, someone falling outside of your you know, for lack of a better word, commandments. And are you forgiving of that? Um, I'm much more forgiving than I was. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a lesson that we had in one of the the sessions at Hoffman and I'll never forget it. It was, I, I was holding on to something and I write about it in the book. It was something, you know, lawyers were involved, business dealings, whatever. And I had felt like something was really unfair and I couldn't, shake this feeling of like this was unjust and again it goes back to like my teenage angst growing up mormon as well you know if i don't think that something doesn't make sense to me i cannot it's hard for me to like shake it and let it go well one of the teachers talked about the idea of vindication and truly like when you hold on to anger and resentment it's like you're drinking poison hoping the other person dies and it doesn't work and mm. so I, I've learned over the years 
to really just be responsible for the way that I react or the way that I project or hold on to things. Like, And I, I think now, even in just the way that I feel emotions, like if I feel sad, angry, scared, anxious, whatever it is, like I now kind of have realized and recognized that like emotions really only kind of sit with you for about 90 seconds and then it, your brain moves on to something else. So I think maybe it's part of being a Pisces because we're all Pisces are very in our own little dreamy state, our own little world. When um, is your birthday? March 10th. Okay. And Mike is March 1st. So we are two fishies just kind of like floating around. It's, um, it's a lot of fish. It's a lot of emotions, a lot of communicating. It's a lot of talking about our feelings. But um, but yeah, I, I feel like now I'm I'm much more kind of just don't sweat it, you know? And I think Does anyone have the ability to get you out of yourself and like give a read or get upset or scream or yell? Like can someone pull that out of you? Oh God, Quinn, I've been on social media now since twenty twelve. And I think like I've really only barked back at people twice. Maybe three times. And two out of the three times I've regretted it big time because it Where were they just trolls? added fuel to the fire. Um, one was a disgruntled, like right wing store owner, shop owner who, you know, things have gotten quite heated over the past year and I don't even want to give him okay the attention, but fair um, enough. No, the other one was like a kind of like a beauty website where they critique like beauty brands. And I just Mm -hmm. was standing up for, I write about it in the book. I was standing up for Kim because I didn't think they were being fair to, to her personality and and how she is. So anyways, long story short, it's never worth it, you know? And, and also again, like I just have to be responsible for how I respond and how I don't respond. And just like, you know, I also try to think like there's much bigger problems in the world than whatever is right in front of me. I mean, you're evolved. I agree with that. I I tried not to get into situations where I think that that might happen, but, you know, you know, it could be reactive for sure. But you learn over time. But you do regret it later. Yeah, you just from experience, you learn that, like, it's not worth it. And most of the time, it's about the other person. And even in marriage, in relationships, like, you really have to learn that because, it's something I love that that line that when it's hysterical, it's historical. And it's so true. Huh. You know, it, when you yeah. react and you don't take time to just kind of cool down or think about your response, like you definitely are going to create something that will be hard to forget. Yeah, you just can't take it back. I have to learn that not everybody has to be um, told what it is, you know, like mm-hmm. you don't have to like spell it out for people just because you think you're right or because it's the righteous side to be on. Like you can also just give someone the cold shoulder and it's easier. And then you don't regret what anything you've said, you know, Yeah, I actually saw an astrologer and he said that to me where I was telling him about this situation where I really like laid it all out there. And he was like, well, if it's over, why do that? Just move on. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess. I mean, next time I will (laughs) like, you know, (laughs) Yeah, I had the same thing at Hoffman too. I, I was like explaining the situation. I was going into detail and I was getting heated talking about it. And my instructor was like, 
okay, it's over. Like this is your first time in business. You know, men can be ruthless like lions in a den when it comes to money, especially. And, you know, this is you, you're in the den and it's over, like move on. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And it just took like, I think somebody just telling me to just yeah. don't sweat it anymore. Are you and being ready for that change? Like you, you, if someone tells you the same thing earlier, if you're not ready for it, then it's not going to, you're not going to take it in. Yeah. So there's something and, in you that also wanted that, I'm sure. And don't you feel kind of like Quinn, we're therapists, you know, oh, we're, yeah. we're creatives, we're also therapists. And I've given so much advice out to clients through the years in the salon or wherever. And it's funny, like I found myself as I got older, like, wow, I really need to listen to my own advice. Here's the thing about you that amazes me, truly. You have a supporting role. Like like you were saying before, you created Main Addicts for this community. You wrote a book for people to get inspired. You show up to your clients like I do to give them everything you can so that they can go out into the world and be their best. But at the same time, you have managed to do that for yourself. Like you also have, you know, a brand and you have a book and you're a successful hairstylist. How are you able to be the giver and the kind of behind the scenes person and still manage to get what you want? Like you're going out there, you're boldly going after what you want. Well, I have to like definitely give credit to the time and place that I am in. You know, I think from having social media and recognizing it as a tool early on, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to give so much credit to my clients and my girlfriends. There was this, you know, this like feminist movement that happened and And not even that, I think now it's become people appreciate knowing who's behind a brand that they're supporting. And we're so awake. It's like a revolution, really. It's like this democracy that's happening in fashion and beauty and, and consumerism. And I think by just watching and learning and being supported and working with, you know, the Kardashian Jenner family that Kim was definitely one of the first people to ever tag her glam squad. And that simple act created so much opportunity for so many of us. And I think, you know, whether it's Emily Weiss at Glossier or Huda Beauty or Kylie Jenner or Jessica Alba creating Honest, Chrissy Teigen doing Cravings and, you know, all of these strong women in my life, like it was, I guess, girl gang of entrepreneurship that helped to kind of like give me that confidence and, and teach me a lot. How did you know that there would be enough for you while you're still supporting other brands that do exactly what you do? Like, you know, I'll never forget when you started Main Addicts. And I understand it only like now that I'm doing a podcast. You used it to what I perceived at the time was give a spotlight to your competitors, right? Like you're up for a job. And some you're giving an editorial to somebody else who's up for a job and might get it over you. Yeah. Why did why did you do that? And how did you know that there was a, there would be enough for you at the end of the day to have a paycheck? I did it because it wasn't being done. And I was curious. I think, you know, there's a part of my rebellion in, you know, thinking outside of like the Mormon church. I was like questioning things from a very young age. 
So that never stopped. And I remember just observing and seeing what was missing. And, you know, our field was so competitive. And like I said in the book, I had Sally Hirschberger to look up to. You can name 20 famous hairstylists and brands, but I really had Sally. And and I think, you know, from just looking at the experience I had as a woman trying to get my foot in the door in this like male-dominated industry, there was this need for me to help other girls who were thinking that they'd want to have a successful career in hair. And then there was also, I, I wanted you know, I saw with social media, I kind of noticed like there was this gap. Like I needed people to know who Guido was. I needed people to know Danilo and Bob Racine and like all of these. Do you think they do now? I, yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, through books and social media, you know, I remember being so inspired by Kevin Aquan because I do not know one person that did not have that book, any of his books. Like is the first superstar. us, totally. Yeah. And pre-social media, like t- for him to be able to make that kind of an impact was so inspiring to me. And, you know, I really just, I loved the concept of creating a playground with main addicts where brands could come and talk to consumers and to professional stylists and where consumers could come and get hair trends and learn not only about like the celebrities and influencers that were on the carpets, but learn who was doing those looks and what else they've done and how to do it. But how did you have the spirit to say, I'm going to do that and I'm going to highlight people who like Nike's not going to make a, a site where Reebok can show their latest product and you something about, are you not competitive? Like, I think it, that that actually is going to change. I really do. I think over time, like, like this whole idea of like, not collaborating is going to change more and more. Wait, Why do you Quinn, think? Yeah. I have to change my AirPods really quick. Oh, okay. Husband's got the new fancy one. Just taking a little break. You know. Let's protect the planet. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. I'm just getting my other uh, AirPods connected. Yeah, no problem. One sec. I'm so sorry. Oh my god, it just oh, died out of nowhere. Okay. Will you take Chewy out for me? Chewy, come on. Thank come you. On. And Rue. Rue. <laughs> okay. I am. Can you hear me now? Yep. Oh my god, I did it. Wow, that was really stressful. Sorry. <laughs> I'm back. All right. So. Hi. You have to remind me where we were. Why is why would two competing brands collaborate in the future? You were saying, you know, I think because I feel like everyone appreciates the concept of collaboration, and I, you know, we've seen like this is a really weird example, but like the North Face Gucci collab that mm-hmm. just happened, or Sephora now going into Kohl's and. Ulta going into Target, you know, I just feel like lines are being blurred. And I think that what was once like, you had to have a certain way of like, showcasing your brand or speaking to consumers, like it's all changing. And everyone appreciates authenticity, honesty, transparency. And I just think that like the days of feeling like you can't, you know, I, I we've seen it in so many different 
different genres and industries. Like it, it's just the more you let go of this idea of like, you know, the same reason when I started doing way, I did not stop talking about other brands that I use in my kit, you know, mm-hmm. and, and while it might've raised eyebrows, I was like, I am doing this because this is normal. This is honest. This is like, you know, just because I have a hairspray doesn't mean there's not 10 other hairsprays that I've used that I like that are different. You know, I've always just wanted to be really an open book. And and I think people are just smart. People can see through bullshit. And so I think it's just best to kind of like, you know, just be honest about what you're putting out there, what what you're selling, what you're doing. It's just best to be honest. I remember, so you and I years ago were in Paris for Fashion Week, and we did a shoot for um, an editorial with Bella Hadid. And it was like a beauty story. And I looked over at one point, and you were on the um, the long table with in a chair with your laptop. And you were like, Quinn, come over here. And I'd never seen anybody like this it, it, still to this day. You had like stats and analytics and background stuff. And you were like, look at this, Quinn. I can see this, this, and that, and the other. And I was like thinking, what? Like, who? A, who are you? And, and how do you know all this? So you have had this kind of foresight about social media, um, Instagram, kind of marketing online. How did you know how to do that? You were doing that when everybody else was not, we're just like logging on to Instagram. It's just, it comes down to asking questions. You know, I, I talk about it in the book as well. Like you have nothing to lose. The same reason why I... You know, some people would say I have no business starting a brand. I didn't graduate college. I didn't study marketing. I don't know. You know, I'm not a formulator. Like I got to a point in my life where I was like, why not me? You know, and I think Uh with with Instagram, it's interesting because my my relationship with TikTok is different. Like TikTok to me seems complicated. I know it's fun and, and it's not, but it feels complicated to me. But Instagram... And like Snapchat and Twitter, it all just, it felt, I love the idea of communicating. I love the idea of taking polls of crowdsourcing before you could do the polls feature on stories. Stories didn't even exist. I would post something on my grid and I would ask people to vote like left or right. And I have pictures of like, like napkins and I would sit there and tally, hand tally, like what people were, were voting for. And I just, I love the idea of being able to communicate and connect with people just at an instant it's it's but is that is it a passion of of intel yeah yeah Yeah. it is but i think that's also like part of our job working you know in makeup and in hair like the thing that keeps us going is the connection with people you know we're people people We're, we're not the type to like not care like i'm constantly asking questions during glam i love to learn i you know, the I other thing I've seen you do that you did it with Carly and you've done it with Lily and every other client we've done together is you have an iPad and you're like, should we do an updo? And then you pull up this folder and it's got like hundreds of beautiful updos and you're like, or we could do it down and like, or like Cobra Snake. And then you have a folder of that. Genius. I mean, I don't have the wherewithal to do that. Like I, I just am not that organized, but like how amazing like that you thought 
well, you know what? A picture's worth a thousand words, and then they can show me exactly what they want. Quinn, do you know what that's inspired by? No. It was those old books that they would have in salons with different uh-huh. haircuts and colors. And I remember going with my mom in the 80s when she'd go get a perm. And I remember opening these books and like seeing guys and girls. They were so cheesy. They but were so I, bad. Yeah. So bad. But I remember like these like asymmetrical cuts and crazy, like, you know, crazy colors. But I remember thinking how genius that was at a young age. And like, it's like a menu. You're like basically going through a menu. And I just well, always had that. What is it about your personality, though, that you're finding these um, holes or gaps and going, this is like, whether it be main addicts where you said about, you know, a place for women to support each other or here, like even at a job going, you know what, it would be good. You're, you're, I feel like as an outsider, you're constantly looking for these kind of ways to fill in the gaps of what people need. Yeah, I think that that is, you know, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that that is from one of my girlfriends, Catherine Power of Merit and Burst, she said to me one time, she's like, being an entrepreneur is like using ways and taking a side road that makes you take a left turn that like no one wants to take that feels like, you know, it's a risk because you could either sit there forever to try to make that left turn or, you know, there's no traffic and you, and you make it, you know, but I think that my mind has always kind of worked in a way where I now recognize it as looking for a white space, something that's non-existent, um, mm. and trying to fill that void. And that's what I did with Way. You know, I was working for and with a ton of brands, but at the time I, I started doing due diligence and looking at who was behind the brands and it was always an old white man. And so I remember being like, okay, I know hair. I've done this, you know, like I know what I like and what I don't. And as a consumer, I know what I like and what I don't. And, and the, all the things as far as like messaging, packaging, fragrance, formula, like I really like at the time when we formulated, like it was weird to think of a sulfate free, phthalate free, you know, vegan brand. Um, and it's so awesome. Like we just celebrated our fifth birthday yesterday. And it's wow. so awesome to see how the industry has changed and how I'm obsessed with Briogeo and Nancy Twine and Red that just launched um, this year. And there's just so many amazing people behind brands and it's just really exciting. And also in the hair industry, like I, in my acknowledgements in the book, I had to list and, and congratulate Jen Pez, Laura Poco, you know, Rita Hazan, Tracy Cunningham, Mara Rosak, like all of the women who Jenny Mm -hmm. Cho, like there are so many women now that like when I sat down to write it, Brianna Capri, like I just went on and on and on. And it was, it felt so good that that was the reality today. There are so many more women in, in positions of power and hopefully like, you know, not just in our industry, but in government and everything, CEOs and all, you know, business and all of that. Um, so how do you, when you have this idea that you, you, you have the confidence, you're like, I am an expert and I do know this better than, you know, uh, some old white man in a boardroom, but you, you don't have their resources. Like, cause I think a lot of people have great ideas that never, you know, take off because how did you then go, okay, how am I going to actually get this made? Well, I kind of thought like, how did they get it made? You know, everything starts from square one and you know, you hope that it will 
grow into something that you are really proud of. I, I remember I have an old booklet actually that I just found as we were cleaning out our office and it had tabs and one tab was like PR marketing, um, labs, you know, it was, it was like my just research online. I mean, Quinn, we live, it's 2021. Like right. you can Google pretty much anything. There's a template for everything. There's somebody telling their story. There's someone, you know, tagging who they're working with and how they've done it. Like there's so many podcasts now. And I think we, you know, when I started writing down in 2014, what I wanted way to look like and smell like, and what I wanted to, to sound like, I went to an old friend of mine, Tony Umel at Case Agency, and we he's also former Mormon. And, you know, I've known him for so many years, 20 years now. And I was lucky enough that I, you know, he took a chance and, and helped with the brand. And I'm just, you just start somewhere, pen to paper, make phone calls, ask questions. The best thing you can do is try to find a mentor, find somebody in that space mm-hmm. who is maybe what you want to be in 10 to 15 years and ask what it's like. You know, I remember cold calling Sonia Kashuk and having lunch with her in New York. And she's amazing. Oh, that woman to me, I mean, the fact that she had that brand at target and she's the one that called target over and over and over again. And what she, and she's the one who got high end like form formulators, like at intercost and everything labs to make, make up for the mass. Genius. Yeah. Genius. Do you, is fear a part of your decision? Like if you want to do something and you're feeling scared, is that an indicator for you not to do it? Or do you, how does that work in? I think what's helped me in my career and life, my personal life and work life is that I don't have that bug that like cares what people think. And I've always been that way. And I don't know, you know, I mean, I've gone to loads of therapy. I, I think maybe being adopted kind of plays into that. Cause I, my adoption story was I was adopted at birth. My family's white. I just did my DNA test and I'm like 46% Native American. And I just remember my parents and my sisters always treating me very special and telling me I was special. And I think that like my parents just really like instilling that confidence into a, a young girl, like has really helped me so much in, in my adult years, because for me to be able to put it all out there in social media, if I was sensitive, it would have crushed me, you know? And so what does everybody do who is sensitive? Don't have Instagram, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I stay away from things that trigger you, you know, I don't know, I, but I'm just, I'm telling you, like, I just have never cared what people think. Cause I think at the end of the day, I look myself in the mirror. This is my life. I have one shot at it. You know, like I've always felt like, but, but that takes people a lifetime if, if they ever get to that point. And here you are like somebody who doesn't care what other people think. No, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that feel the same way. I think, you know, um, I mean, I really admire you. I think if I didn't care what other people thought, I, what I would there ever to be not happy about? <laughs> the only advice I can give is to know your worth, to know, like it all starts with how your relationship with yourself. 
And, and I talk about it in the book that there is a fine line between ego and self-confidence. And I think that by really truly like wanting good things in your life and putting in the work. And again, this goes back to my Mormon roots because Mormons really truly like they take good care of their body. They're constantly setting goals. They're, you know, some of the best people to hire because they're just diligent and, and honest and fair. And, um, I think that, you know, I have seen in my life when I am putting the work in and putting positivity out there, it comes back to me and it's helped me to manifest good things in my life. And when I start to get anxious, I had a call with the Hoffman group the other day and we were all just kind of putting our anxieties out there, whether it was anxiety about your kids, the state of the world, what's happening next at this vaccine. She said something to us that was like, you never would have been able, like the, the image you have of your future you couldn't live in it. And what that means is like, if you think about who you were 10, 15 years ago, and you think of who you are today and where you are today, like you would have never imagined it. And I feel that all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, and it's helped me to feel calm and trusting and peaceful about my future because I would have never imagined what, like personally, what I would have gone through where we would have gone through, you know, globally, to go through this pandemic together. Like we would have never imagined this Quinn, but again, like I think I just, I think by having a positive mindset and a positive spirit and just trying to, you know, and people have fucked me over. You know what I mean? Like I have met people that don't have good intentions. I've had like my own, you know, bad things happen. Well, you could argue that being, you know, um, adopted was already one thing that happened to you. What impact did that have on you in terms of self thinking about that you had been adopted? Did you always know growing up? Yeah. See, the thing is my parents were very honest about it from, I mean, obviously I'm Brown. Mm -hmm. They're not, (laughs) you know, so they were always honest about it. I remember them showing me a picture of my birth mother when I was maybe seven, six years old. If you ever want to meet her, let us know. It was never weird. My parents were always honest about it. And I have to say like my adoption story, like Mike and I talk a lot about whether or not we'll adopt later on because it was so magical. And while I wasn't like my sisters, I'm a very different personality than my mom and dad in some ways. I I definitely have like picked up traits of both of them, but um, I never had an issue of feeling um, not wanted or neglected or abandoned And I think it's because, you know, my family, I really got lucky. Like they, what I've learned through therapy is I was overloved as a child, Mm. (laughs) you know, like I was the one that was like never put down. And like my sisters, like I've always just been so um, well taken care of and loved and adored by my parents. And I think that my, like, I never felt like, what does it feel like to not be adopted? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know any difference. Like, right. it, like those are my parents. Did you so, have a longing to find or to have a relationship or anything with your uh, DNA? No, parent? my birth mother. No, um, I didn't. But she reached out when I was, I think, either 12 or 14. And I've met her and her children and her new husband um, a couple of times. Yeah. We met when I was younger 
And it was really good for me in now that I look at it, you know, and I see the sacrifice that she made. Um, I'm so happy that that happened because I think it helped to just give closure to her. And I remember hugging her and crying and her just apologizing and, and she was crying. I wasn't, it felt like my parents friend from down uh-huh. the street came over and was kind of losing it. And I, but I look at it now and I'm like, thank God she had that. And I think by me at, at 14, being able to say to her, like, don't be sorry. I have a really great life, you know? And it really, for me and for her, I think was, was just kind of like a closing of, of a chapter, you know, cause I got to put like a face to the person. But again, Quinn, like when you have a mom and dad, like I already have that. So I never felt like I needed it or, or missed out on it. And, you know, kudos to my parents for. Yeah. That I, made I you feel that like you had enough and, and were, uh, family like truly had a place there my sister will probably listen to this and they they can attest that i'm my dad's favorite (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny is did that have an impact on you just uh not knowing when you wanted to have if or when you wanted to have kids um you mean being adopted yeah no no that hasn't played into it i guess i I can say why why don't you know if you wanted to because you know, it's a personal question. I Everyone has their own reasons, but why didn't you want kids before now? Oh, Quinn, this is the most annoying question that girls get from the minute I they know. Well, start you know what? You, period. You don't have to answer it, except for I know that you said you might adopt and that you... Um, no, I know. I, I'm teasing you. I read somewhere that you froze, you know. I, I know. Froze. I we, hate to... Wait, we fro- no, it's okay. I'm, I'm just teasing you. You know, the one thing I will say is biology and where we're at today are in very different places. And I think the number one piece of advice I can give any girl in your 30s, freeze your eggs or if you're Mm -hmm. in a relationship and want to freeze embryos, but do it. Because I'll tell you, I did not have a maternal instinct. I did not have that need or want to have kids. I was so focused on career, career, career. and you know, just like enjoying my freedom and my life. And I think that it was just the best decision I ever made because here I was at maybe the height of my career, the busiest I've ever been. And yet my doctors were like, okay, you're 33, 34. You need to think about doing this because the youngest your eggs are is when you want to keep them frozen so that you have like a chance of having the healthiest. The best chance. Yes. And whether you do IVF or whatever, but it just took the weight of the world off my shoulders. And I'm so grateful to Dr. Wong at reproductive uh, agency here in, in LA because it was just painless. It was great. It was so easy. I'm so glad I did it. So I definitely highly recommend it. And I hope that more and more companies start paying for it for their, um, for their team. Yeah. I think in, in Europe, obviously it's covered like everything else is, you know? Totally. Yeah. But it just made me um, feel like, and- you know, you don't have to make, a decision until you're ready. I think like you were saying, like in before the seventies, like 33 used to be like where you would have to have a kid. Whereas now it's like 33, you might have just be starting your career or you might, you know, you feel so young. It's like, you don't know what you're still growing at that time. Like we're babies for longer now. Yeah, totally. At least and kids. It's, it's, it's interesting. I just feel like, you know, whether you're a young mom, a young parent or older, it's like, there's no right or wrong. And there's so many options now. And I think it, this Ozzy and Harriet, you know, 
structure of whatever society used to project on people back in the day. It's so funny watching WandaVision and seeing like in media how, you know, this perfect life was so projected onto people. And it's just like all bullshit, you know, it we, is. All, like, we all re- realize it now and we're breaking down all that patriarchal nonsense. And it's quite refreshing to see it happen. I mean, the whole interview, I just want to find something that you're like, irrational about or or like fucked up like because it's just not normal like you're so like (laughs) also like you're liberal you're you're on the right side of like issues and things and you put that in your book so here you have a book that you want to sell and you talked about uh, george floyd lgbt rights social justice why is it important for you to put that in there? And why not just like be quiet and not talk about those things and sell to those people who don't want to hear that? Oh my God. I mean, it never was a question for me, you know, like, again, I left a religion that said certain people weren't allowed to do certain things or be certain things or be as valued. These labels that were making people not as valuable. And I hated it. And I always hated it when I learned about it in church. I hated it. And I hated the feeling that I felt. It was definitely hard for me growing up when we left Hawaii and went to Utah, like being one of the few brown girls in a white, white, white community, you know, yeah. So I knew what it felt like to be that outsider. Mm -hmm. So I think when I found my people, when I moved to LA, when I, you know, was like, oh my God, I've missed out on 19 years of gay men and like <laughs> just the LGBTQ community as a whole and being in the salon in this world of like fashion and art and culture and like, yes, queening. I loved it so much. And, you know, it was when like we were, we were fighting Prop 8 and like my own parents' church was like making calls from Utah to a California. Lot. I was just, you know, there's just been so many milestones where I'm like fighting on the right side and, and I would never not, you know, it's never been a question, but you know, I mean, listen, this year alone, I definitely have a ton of right-wing people who are upset with my voice and me being vocal and thinking that I'm wrong, but I don't care. You know, I'm here to like, try to help bring equality and it doesn't just stop at feminism. And I think, you know, writing the book was really interesting because I was finished with it at the top of the year. And then the pandemic happened. And then I was like, okay, I need to rewrite because, you know, now more than ever with the uncertainty of what life looks like for people and a lot of people losing their jobs and losing family members. I was like, I need to write about this and try to give as much perspective and advice as I can. And then George Floyd happened. And here I was like really looking at, you know, my role in the feminist movement, but yet I had to really look at like intersectionality and like what I was doing and what I can do to try to help every woman, you know, and help to bring up especially communities that like that need brands and need employers to take a chance on them because like, you know, listen, I had little Caesars on my resume when I moved to LA <laughs> I get a job as a manager of a salon. It's like, I have always been so grateful to people who took a risk and took a chance on me. And yeah. I just, I didn't laugh at that because there's something wrong with little Caesars. It's just, I don't know. Um, no, it's ironic. It's like, you yeah. can imagine a salon looking at my resume and I've worked at like Abercrombie and little Caesars, but 
you know, in Utah, (laughs) but, um, you know, I just, I've always felt like fighting for the underdog and there's so much work to be done. And I saw it in the feminist movement that I was a part of, that I was brought up through and that I have made my own, you know, my own incredible life from being a part of that. And so, you know, I, I see that there's so much work to be done. It's hard. It's harder to be in the position that we're in of fighting for rights for people. That's hard, you know, and sometimes it can get like, you wake up and you're like, God, there's so many things, you know, that like my friend of the day was like, what kind of, what charity should I give money to? I feel like you'd know. And I sent her a list I have in my notes, but I was just like, it can be overwhelming at times. And, and it's easier to just be comfortable in whatever your privilege is. It's, it's easier to just not want things to change. You know, that's easier to keep people down, but yeah, I've always had that that spirit. I love that you have that spirit. I'd love anybody who has a platform and uses it to. Um, oh my god! Shout out you to know, Carla Welch, to, to the OG. Good. Yeah, somebody's gonna be like, an, "That's an true for everybody, but you. You need to shut some of that shit off. <laughs> too much." Oh my god! Um, it's so funny though. It's like, who wants to live a fake, unauthentic life? Like, it sounds fucking miserable. Yeah, except like 90% of the people that you end up having to deal with in life. That's my glass half full. Okay, um, let's change here's it. My, <laughs> here's my question that I ask everybody um, on here, and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but if you were able to step into a magic time machine and meet yourself somewhere in your life, where would it be and what would you tell yourself? It would definitely be like sometimes when I meditate, there's a practice that we do where – sometimes the younger you shows up and you kind of see what they look like. And I tend to go towards, I think childhood, I I really have such fond memories. I think I go towards, you know, like 13, when you're that age of like, everything feels so intense, you kind of start recognizing flaws in your parents and it doesn't feel, you know, or your community, it doesn't feel as like safe as you thought it was. And you're figuring out your identity. And I think what I would do is, Really, I just imagine myself like kind of embracing her and just telling her that it's going to be okay. You know, I think at that age, it's like when you need to hear that, that it's all going to be okay and the things that you're feeling and the things that you're, you know, it's that teenage angst that is just so powerful. And uh, yeah, that's usually during meditation. What I say is like, it's all going to be okay. I think that that's the key is that like you can make these discoveries and go to therapy and do all these things, but putting it into the daily meditation or the journaling or whatever it is, a gratitude that that's what keeps you on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Mentally. Again, like we are not programmed to feel positive things, to have positive emotions, to, you know, expect the best. We're not programmed to be that way. So you have to literally work at it. Takes and work. It does take work, but like you get into your groove. It's the same thing as like, you know, going to the gym. Right. Sometimes it's a nightmare. You don't want to do it. But once you're there, you realize like how great it is for you. And, and it just takes, uh, really like holding yourself accountable and really working on it. And so many things aren't even that deep. It's just habits. Like you're just in a habit of like doing that. And you just change the habit, like get in the habit of doing it once a day and then it becomes easier. You know, I'm such a nerd. I have literally on my habit tracker, it's like meditate, gratitude journal, drink, you know, water, sleep eight hours, read one chapter. 
walk my dogs. Oh my God, I stopped drinking. <laughs> but for sure desserts that I indulge in. But like, and now I have check on a friend, which I added about four months ago because just, I think at the end of the day, just reaching out to a friend to just be like, listen, let, you know, just let it out. Oh, that's we all need to like, and I love the practice. I read about this in the happiness project. There is an incredible practice of sending gratitude to three people at the beginning of your day for no reason, just three people in your life. And just saying like, I love you because, or I want this for you because, you know, just like honestly putting that out there, like to me, Quinn, that's like more powerful. I know people like love like reading a Bible verse or something and, and I'm Mm -hmm. not bashing that at all, but that for me is like my Bible verse, you know, just like putting out some positive energy to somebody and making them feel good. Wow. I hope everybody who knows me is going to send me one of those tomorrow. (laughs) And it takes like (laughs) two minutes, two minutes. I'm going to try that. Um, So many good things, Scott. I, I want (laughs) to, I want to download you. Um, Let's, I just wanted to um, see if we could play a game. Well, yeah, that (laughs) it's called double A L A all about L A. Cause I know you live in L A. Double A L A. Yeah. A A L A. Favorite expensive juice? Creation. Favorite gas station? I have a Tesla. Ooh. Favorite parking garage? What? This is random. Favorite Very parking garage? Very random. Yeah. Ooh, the parking garage at the way offices. Okay. Favorite nail salon? We have a woman that comes to us. I used to go to Bellacure, though. So maybe Bellacure? Or Olive in June? Yeah, Olive in June. Oh, yeah, that's good. Best sushi? Duh, sugarfish. So good. We have it in New York now. Um, best beauty supply store? Mm, my assistants go to those. I don't really. Oh, Namie's. Namie's is great. I feel like I really love Namie's. Namie's is amazing. Yeah. Best celebrity sighting? No, I'm going to go back and, and scratch that. Sorry. My answer for that last one. Uh-huh. And shout out to Jesus because he told me about it. The Pico Beauty Supply on Pico Boulevard. Oh, the best beauty supply. They're like the funnest things. I live for LA beauty supply stores because we don't have those big, like, you know, big and like kind of trashy stores in New York. You know, yeah. they're all like either really high end or not existent. Yeah, we do have a plethora of them, but you got to search for like the good ones. Best celebrity sighting. Oh, my God. I don't know why Don Rickles at Nobu came to mind. That's not a good celebrity good. sighting. Those are I the mean, good ones. Nobody wants like Angelina. Like mine was when I saw <laughs> Beetlejuice on the street. I was like, that <laughs> is so good. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I feel like, God, Quinn, there's somewhere in L.A. Best celebrity sighting. Ooh, it wasn't somebody sighting, but I got to work with her once, Donna Summers. Oh, yeah. I saw her yeah. once in concert. She was amazing. Best hotel. I see Bianca Jagger, too. Um, best hotel in LA, I'd say best hotel. I really love the Lamertage. It's like business friendly. I don't know. I like it. Best place to meet friends. Ew, no one talks to anybody. We're in LA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. just Worst place best, to no, meet no, no, friends. Best place to meet friends. Best place to meet friends right okay. now is, is Clubhouse. And if one more person asks me if I want an invite to Clubhouse, I'm gonna scream. But I know everyone What is Clubhouse? Mm-hmm. Clubhouse is this like networking. There's like people do speak. You're going to Google it and it'll blow your mind. But Clubhouse is all the rage to meet people. Okay. It's a physical place, not like an online place. No, it's an online place. But in LA, physical oh, okay. place would be like San Vicente Bungalows or Soho House. Mm-hmm. 
Where's the worst place to meet friends in LA? Oh, Earth Cafe on Melrose. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know why it came to mind. Best dermatologist? Um, Shawnee Darden. Okay. Best facial? Oh, actually, Shawnee's the facialist. I'd say Christy Kidd would be the dermatologist. Okay. I'm Googling all of these when we're done. Um, best hair color? Oh, don't do this to me. I'm going to get in trouble. I know, you're going to get in trouble. You can plead the fifth. Um, I'll say Cascading, Tracy Cunningham, and Tawny. Mm-hmm. All very good. LA has like really good hair colors, I have to say. Um, yeah, like best Lori wor- Goddard. I can go on and on and on. Best workout? Um, I love training with Danny and Luck Fit and Tracy Anderson and Melissa Wood Health. And I stream all of those classes now. And it's just an honor for all of them to be nominated. I'm sorry. I know. I have this like, <laughs> you know, I'm like a yellow pages over here. Best salad. Ah, La Scala. The yeah. Turkey drop. I had a feeling you were going to say that. That's the one with the salami uh, in it. Yes. Oh, you so know, good. I love anything with salami in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read your book title. Um, <laughs> be- <laughs> best cheat meal. Best cheat meal would probably be, oh, God, Wood Ranch Grill. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to look that up. Okay. And then I just have a few more questions. Blow dry or blow money? Blow dry. Save your money. Okay. Do your own blow dry. It's money. Blow dry. Are you an east side or west side girl? Neither. I actually, there's not a neighborhood in LA I love. Oh, wow. It's so weird. I live here. I know. I just like never found a neighborhood I like love. Is that weird? I would think then you should leave LA. I'm going to tell you this. I'm on chapter five of Mariah Carey's audio book that she did. Okay. And this is why I love LA because when I'm on the road is when I get to listen to my books. But yeah, I'm not an East or West Sider. Aren't you in Hancock Park? Well, thank you for that. My security just oh, <laughs> out the window. Aren't you at 75 or 4? With the gate are. code of 1234? <laughs> We're close to Largemont. And I do love Largemont. It's great. But like, I don't love any of the neighborhoods here. Ditto. They're all fine. But, you know, is there a place in New York you like die There's for? a problem with every neighborhood in LA because no matter where you are, you're 45 minutes from another place. So you're like, I love, you know, the Palisades, but then you're like, but it's 45 minutes from Los Feliz. So it's like you're, everything you do has this traffic built into it, right? Um, so my answer is the car. New York, I love the car. You love the, your Tesla. New York had neighborhoods. I mean, it always with New York, it's like, how much money do you have? You know, I really want to move to Brooklyn. I want to move to like um, Brooklyn Heights or Cobble Hill, but you know, West Village, Gramercy mm. Park. I don't know. There's so many. Um, Weight Watchers or Atkins, Jen Atkins? <laughs> Atkins, duh. <laughs> Atkins okay. was the original keto, by the way. I just want to say that. Totally. They, it, that's the ultimate rebranding. They're like, it's not Hello. Atkins, it's keto. Keto. And lastly, stuck in traffic or stuck up? Stuck in traffic, listening to Mariah, darling. Love that. Jen, I know how busy you are, and I just really appreciate you coming on uh, my early new podcast. And uh, I love, I think a lot of people are going to listen to you, and I can already imagine people saying that they 
you know, felt inspired and are going to try to, you know, get their Jen Atkin on. I know I am. They're going to blow their way to the top. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say like, I, this was one of my favorite interviews and I'm not just saying that you're very Aww. good at what you do. And you. it was honest and comfortable. And I hope I didn't say too much. And if anybody's upset with me, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to get mad about it. I don't care. Yeah. But I really, and if really anybody love- is upset with Jen, repost <laughs> this and talk about it on social media and send uh-huh. it to all of your friends and tell There's them no to download thing. and comment. That's my other tip. That's what I'm going to leave everyone with. There's no such thing as bad press. Mm. Okay. Okay. All right, Jen, take care and be safe. Thank you, Quinn.